0: Welcome back, everybody, to the 105th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. And today, I'm so excited Michelle Eichardt will be joining us. Michelle Eichardt is a member of the Today Show Parenting team and NBC News Learn. The author of Middle School Makeover, her work has been featured in the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor, Red Book, Time and People, Her leadership curriculum for middle schoolers, Athena's Path, and Hero's Pursuit have been implemented at schools across the United States, and her summer camp curriculum is offered at more than 20 camps each summer. She lives with her family in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, Michelle will talk about her new book, 14 Talks by Age 14 the essential conversations you need to have with your kids before they start high school. Michelle draws from her decades of experience working with families to focus not only on those big thorny topics like friendship, sexuality, impulsivity, and technology, but on conversations about creativity, hygiene, money, privilege, and contributing to the family. She outlines her family-tested formula for best approaching these essential conversations, the brief model and helps parents overcome some of the most common hurdles when talking to tweens. So welcome, Michelle. I am so glad that you can join us today. And I know my moms are going to love what you have to say. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I know you have kids. So can you tell me the ages of your kids?
1: Sure. I have a 20 year old daughter and an 18 year old son. And I have been doing this work that I do with kids in this sort of Tween age group since they were two and four.
0: Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. So it was like pre before they were tweens, and then when they were tweens, and then now post tweens. That's right. <laughs>
1: that's they, awesome. In the whole journey with me.
0: Yes. Yes. That's awesome. I love it. Well, I love your book, 14 Talks by Age 14, The Essential Conversations You Need to Have with Your Kids Before They Start High School. And I know this is your second book or right? That's right. It's my second
1: book. Yeah. My first book is Middle School Makeover, Improving the Way You and Your Child Experience the Middle School Years. And it's it's sort of a primer for when midlife and middle school meet under the same roof.
0: Yes, it happens. It happens a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. So um, tell me why you wrote this book. Why did you write 14 talks by age 14?
1: Sure. Um, I run a private parenting Facebook group and we've got about 7,000 members. And so I see a lot of um, trends in the group, what people are talking about, what they're struggling with. And so often I see that, the parents who I work with know that they want to talk to their kids about really important topics. They want to be teachers. They, they want to impart wisdom um, but they don't really know how. And they're trying to talk to kids at a point when kids are really pulling away naturally and rightly they're supposed to be doing that. Um, But it doesn't mean that conversation has to stop. So my thought was to, sort of learn a new language for how to talk to kids at this age and to teach that to parents so that we can continue to keep lines of communication open on all these really important topics without um, putting our kids at risk and without also just completely offending them and having them like run out of the room and say, wow, why are you trying to talk to me about sex? Gross. Leave me alone. Yes. So that was the impetus.
0: (laughs) Yes. No, that was, yeah, that you did it. You did it. Yay. (laughs) So what I liked about it is there's some predictable things you wrote in there that like talking to your kids about sex, talking to your kids about technology, but I like that you you had a really diverse conversations. Can you talk a little bit about just overall the different conversations you wrote about? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I I did not want these 14 conversations to all be lectures, to all be warnings, or to all be bummers. You know, like there's a bunch of scary stuff out there, kids, so we're going to knock out 14 of those just to try to keep you safe. W- what I'm interested in really is sort of the whole child and, and what makes for a really happy life for a human. And so there are topics in there like how to retain your creativity throughout adolescence, because it's a time when as parents, we we believe, oh no, what happened to our little kid? The creativity has gone. They used to make me macaroni necklaces or build forts. And now they just stare at a phone or themselves in a mirror. So (laughs) what's wrong with my kid? Um, And I really wanted to shift the perspective there. Kids this age, 11 through teenagehood are highly creative. It just doesn't look the way we expect it to. Mm -hmm. Um, So creativity is a chapter. Independence is a chapter. Helping others is a chapter. I know that's another thing that parents are really concerned about. Is my child forever going to be selfish and not put their plate in the sink when they're done eating or be kind to friends or whatever it is? So um, so yeah, the, the topics really range from those to self-care, taking taking care of yourself. Um, fairness is a topic, helping kids understand the concept of of what is fair from a micro level what's fair between me and my sibling (laughs) to a macro level what's fair in our community and in our world so that gives you a a little taste of what types of things we talk about
0: yeah I really like that because you're right a lot of the parenting books just talk about all the scary stuff like some parents might be thinking like 14 scary conversations but it's not it's really like it's very holistic and I really appreciate that about the book thank you And you have, and it's very well organized. It's super clear. So you have like three chapters kind of prepping parents to have conversations. And then you have a chapter for each conversation. You came up with the brief model for conversations. So can you tell me how you came up with that and explain what it is?
1: Sure. So the brief model brief is, I I like that it, that it's the word brief because I really don't want any parent to feel like they have to have the one perfect conversation. Um, there's no such thing and you don't need to feel like you have to check everything in order to check the box. I'd love for parents to have a bunch of quick conversations that get in and get out quick, you know, um, with ease and with gentleness, but it's also an acronym. So each letter in the word brief stands for a step in the process. What I find, um, especially in talking to the parents who I work with, is that because they know their kids are pulling away and their kids don't want to talk to them, they think, well, I've got like maybe 20 seconds before my kid picks up their phone or leaves the room or rolls their eyes. I've got to cram everything in really fast. And they often will start at the end of a conversation without realizing it. So be in brief is begin peacefully. And it's just a way to kind of dip your toe in the water instead of feeling like you have a short amount of time, you've got to jump in the deep end really fast. Um, and beginning peacefully can sound like just having a gentle curiosity about a subject, or it could be um, scheduling a time to talk. So lots of kids feel ambushed. They they want time to think and plan and prepare what they're going to say. They're not as good as thinking on their feet. So that's B. Um, R is relate to your kid. And that's just a simple one sentence way of indicating to your kid that you're on the same team. This is not an interrogation. You're not here to bust your kid. <laughs> you just want to say, you know, I. that could sound like, um, yeah, I remember when I, you know, went through this when I was your age, or sometimes I still struggle with this, or, you know, this might be weird to talk about with me, but I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible. Don't worry. So that's B and R. I is interview for data. And um, this is where you get to ask some questions. And to be clear, these questions are really about kind of assessing your comprehension and your kids. So it's not a line of questioning, again, where your kid is going to feel like you're suspicious and you're trying to catch them doing something bad. This isn't where you say like, who who do you know who's shoplifted? And um, have you ever seen anyone shoplift? Have you ever been tempted to shoplift? It's not that. It's more like, um, you know, what is your understanding of why people would do this, or what are the ramifications? Have you heard any stories about this? So you're gathering data, and I I say um, that you're interviewing for data because I don't want this to feel like an emotional conversation. Kids get really turned off when parents get highly emotional about stuff like this. So I really, I in the, in the book, I say, pretend you're a district attorney and you have nothing riding on this case. You're just asking some questions to get information. So that's B-R-I-E is echo what you hear. This is what, you know, every therapist does. And if you haven't been to a therapist, you've probably seen one on TV. So it's the step where you say, um, okay, it sounds like what you're saying is or if, I, if I'm getting this right, you're feeling blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's just a comprehension check. F stands for feedback. And this is the point in the conversation where you can offer advice or give suggestions, or um, if needed, you can set boundaries and, and give clear limitations. But what I think goes wrong typically is that this is where parents start, mm-hmm. thinking they have that tiny little window. Um, and when you start that way, you haven't earned your kid's trust, uh, in the conversation. So they're pretty reluctant to take your advice or suggestions or believe that your boundaries are reasonable because they don't feel heard and they don't feel like you validated where they're coming from. So that is the brief model.
0: That's great. So if some of the moms listening might wonder, do they have to do all those steps in the one conversation or... Great point. Great point.
1: It it can be easy and breezy once you've practiced it. So it doesn't, I mean, I just gave a very long version of brief, but that could take, you know, just two minutes, but no, even in the book, there are some conversations where I say, there's really no point in interviewing for data. If you know, you're going to talk to your child about pornography, um, the fact that they may see it on their iPad or their laptop, you don't have to go do a deep dive into what they understand about pornography, what they've experienced with pornography. So there are times when you may just do BRF or BF, that's fine. Um, And there are certainly times when even a conversation isn't warranted. There will be times when you just have to deliver some quick information to keep your child safe. So it's the brief approach isn't for everything, but it is a great way to develop a rapport with your kid around some topics so that they feel comfortable coming back to you on those.
0: Yeah. No, I love the brief model. That's awesome. In chapter two, you talk about nine ways to improve all conversations with your tween or young teen. Can you talk about some of the most important ones that you see?
1: Sure. Um, so my couple favorite here in, in the ways to communicate well, I'll tell you my very favorite one has nothing to do with what you say. Um, and this one is called the Botox Brow. So this is based on um, some research that came out of McLean Hospital, which is one of Harvard's teaching hospitals. And there's a neurologist who is interested in how we interpret facial expressions. So she put adults through an MRI and um, showed them pictures of people's faces and said, can you tell me what this person feels just by looking at their face? And 100% of the time, adults could identify basic emotions. So happiness, anger, fear, just by reading someone's face. And because they were hooked up to the MRI, she could tell that they were using this the prefrontal cortex. During adolescence, the prefrontal cortex is getting completely rewired and so kids use the emotional center of their brain instead of the prefrontal cortex. So she ran the experiment again with teens, putting them through the MRI, and they could, they could only accurately guess someone's facial expression 50% of the time. And she saw that they were using the amygdala, not the prefrontal cortex. So um, my advice, for parents is pretend you are a celebrity on a late night talk show and that you have been so overly Botoxed, you cannot move your forehead. You're just (laughs) a statue as far as your face is concerned. And I have parents who, um, when I'm, you know, in in non-pandemic times, I'm in an auditorium and I'm looking out at people. I say, I give this advice and their faces go into this wild, wide eyed expression. That's not going to (laughs) work. It's just a very neutral, like completely blank expression on your face. Kids love it. Teens and tweens will tell you so much more because they automatically assume you're angry when your forehead is scrunched up. And my forehead is scrunched up all the time because that's just how I look, you know? (laughs) So you just have to practice having a really neutral forehead, a Botox brow.
0: I love that practical advice. That's great.
1: Thank you, thank you. So that's my favorite. And then the other one that I think works really well is um, to not be so interested, to sort of appear disinterested when you're talking to your tween or teen. If your child feels that you are needy of them, that you need their attention and you need their information and you need their affirmations, they're gonna go running in the other direction because they are driven right now, biologically and neurologically, to be an individual apart from you. And so um, what that would sound like in very practical terms is instead of saying, um, oh, I'm dying to hear how it went at lunch today. Did you figure out who you were going to sit with? Instead of saying that, you might say, hey, I want to hear how lunch went today, but I have to send a few emails first. So maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. Your lack of desperation there will invite your child in and chances are pretty good your kid will say well I could just tell you about it now before you go send the emails so that's another one that I really like
0: yeah no that's great and it's true yeah Yeah, it's really true so yeah or yeah I'm sorry I need to go in the kitchen and start boiling some water yes anything yeah yeah that's really true all right. Then you talk about in chapter three, you talk about conversation crashers, which I like that. I like that acronym. There's great. Alliteration <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean.
1: Sure. Sure. So conversation crashes are the things that we do often without even realizing it that really bug our kids. Um, and that often will derail a conversation and, and cause it to just stop dead in its tracks. So, Common conversation crashers are things like um, assuming how our tween or teen feels or will feel in the future, because we, we have this feeling that, like, I've been there, I've done that, I have this experience, I know how this is going to turn out for you. But again, we're, re- we're working against the fact that our kids need to feel like they are becoming individuals. And that they are not little byproducts of us, little mini me's. So when we say something to them like, um, "I wouldn't do that," I, I can tell you right now, you are going to regret that in the future. Then our kids are like, "I'll show you that I wouldn't <laughs> regret this, but I believe I'm going to do this now just to prove a point that I'm different than you. I'm not the same as you." So, um, so that's a big conversation crusher, of course. Um, using absolutes, which we tend to do as parents when we just reach our frustration point. Like, why can you never turn an assignment in on time? How is it that you are always working at the very last second to get something done? Um, This is unfair to the kid. It's it's a boiling up of our own frustration. And the, the difficulty with this one is that Kids this age are really becoming little lawyers. And so they would love to argue back and prove that you are wrong. And if they can just pull up one piece of evidence of a time that they didn't work down to the last minute or turn something in on time, your entire argument is blown up and they feel like victory and won't listen to you. So that's another one that I think we do a lot without realizing how much damage it causes.
0: Yeah, no, that's perfect. Get, let's have another one. These are great.
1: So this is the one that I struggled with when my kids were in middle school, but it's being passive aggressive. And for me, I am someone who like, it feels really bad to me if I feel unappreciated. That's a, that's a, an Achilles heel for me. Mm-hmm. And so if I reached a point, again, it's sort of a breaking point, knee jerk reaction I've cooked dinner. It was hard for me to make dinner happen because I had a lot going on and I put it down on the table and people were just kind of like, either didn't like it or just raced through it or or, no thanks, I'm getting whatever with a friend. My reaction could so easily turn to, okay, fine. I guess I'm not cooking dinners anymore. Like, you know, (laughs) like this very passive aggressive, like if nobody appreciates what I'm doing for dinner time, then guess what? You cook dinner from now on. And that's entirely unhelpful. It never educates a kid. It never causes a kid to go, mom, you're right. That was so insensitive of me. (laughs) Right. So, um, I think, you know, these are things that like, I don't blame any parent for doing, certainly I have done them, but it's eye-opening to go through them and think about how they are counterproductive. And in that case, what I've learned through experience is, you know, to ask for what I need to say, pause, (laughs) my feelings are hurt because I I worked hard on this and I'm, you know, uh, let's talk about that. So that's a much more productive approach.
0: Yes. So for the moms listening, if you do some of these conversation crashers, it does not mean that you are a terrible mom because we all do them.
1: I think that's so key to hammer home. No one's perfect. Your kid's not perfect. You're not perfect. It's just a matter of um, trying to figure out what what I always believe is that my biggest job as a mom is to keep the door open so that my kids can come to me if they ever find themselves really, really struggling or sad or isolated or confused or whatever it may be, I want them to know they can open my door and talk to me about that. And so um, certainly I've done a million things that have, you know, we've fought, I've cried, I've been passive aggressive, (laughs) like I've done all of that stuff, but the, the more I'm aware of those things and the more I can model, just really open communication with them. I feel it sets them up to do the same with me when they need me.
0: Yeah. And I think it's universal for moms to go, oh my gosh, seriously, then I'm not cooking. Yes. (laughs) So there are certain things that's universal. Our first thought or reaction is like universal and like just like that's normal. And you used a really key word which is pause and another key word in terms of awareness. And that will be super helpful in your conversations. I love that. Yeah. So I'm going to maybe dive into three or four of these conversations just a little bit. In your chapter, talking about independence, you say, in my work, I see two primary ways kids assert their independence after elementary school, isolating themselves from their family at home and by separating from their family to explore the world. And both of these cause parents a great deal of worry. Absolutely. So what advice do you have for moms here?
1: I hope that parents understand that um, your child wanting to go out away from you, wanting to go to the mall and you not be there or you not um, be sitting on the deck while they're hanging out with their kids out back, whatever it may be, um, that that is less a rejection of you and more... Um, An indication that they are ready to practice being independent. And we sometimes forget as parents, as we're caught up in our own emotions, that that's what we want. We really do want our kids to have practice being independent. It's um, that's the goal, right? We want them to fly the nest eventually. Uh, And so that takes a long, long time. And it might start at age 10 or 11 and, and not happen until they're 18, 19, 20, or who knows. Um, so it's it's normal and it has nothing to do with your relationship with your child, your parenting style. It's just what a child needs to do. Now we are in a pandemic still, so kids are doing less and less exploring of their world um, in the ways that kids usually do, like gathering in a food court or hanging out in globs of people at Starbucks, whatever it may be. Um, which means I think we're seeing a rise in the second way that kids practice independence, which is isolation. And parents worry, especially now, is my kid being in their room all the time an indication that something's wrong? Are they depressed? Are they not gonna be able to make friends when they get back out there in the real world? And by and large, no. It's a totally normal, wonderful way for a kid to explore being on their own, thinking their own thoughts, having an apartment essentially in the safety of your own home. So um, I would say unless you're seeing really major red flags, if your kid can't stop crying for for days and days and days, if your child stops eating, um, if your child doesn't have emotional swings, they are really in the pits of despair without coming back up out of it. It's okay if they're in the pits of despair sometimes, all teens are like that and then they bounce back out and they go back in and they bounce back out just a highly emotional time of life. Um, So them being in their room, spending time away from you, not wanting you to come in, insisting that you knock, all of these things are really just a great way for them to practice being little grownups in a safe space.
0: Yeah, yeah. What I see as a therapist is that parents are very, very anxious because not only that they're in their room, and, and and I totally agree with you, but now that's associated with all technology. Right. And so they see that as, oh my gosh, she's on her screens all the time. And a lot of times it's true. So that that's kind of a challenge, I think, for some parents. That's
1: such a good point because even though they they may be in the same room with you, they are thoroughly detached and completely, um, living in whatever is happening in their screen world, and even as an adult, I do that sometimes. I have to catch myself and be like, I, "I'm here with my husband, and we're watching a TV show, but I am really texting a friend." You know, and and maybe that's fine. You and you, you know might have agreement with your partner that, of course, that's normal. I see you all the time, but um, but it's true that we should recognize that 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 sort of creation of a what feels like another world. Um, can be a great way for kids, again, to practice being
0: separate from family. Yeah. Yeah. So they need to read those two conversations about technology and (laughs) independence. Yes. (laughs) All right. Um, And I really enjoyed your chapter nine about fairness, because I think every parent listening has heard, oh, my God, that's not fair. Right. And I love the research that you had. And So can you talk about that? Sure. That chapter.
1: So one of the things that, as you mentioned, that becomes kind of a big mantra for kids once they're in um, late elementary school. I mean, it happens for sure well before that, but you start to hear it a lot more um, early middle school, late elementary is that's not fair. Right. And and what they mean at that young age is um, that's not fair to me because it's not what I want. (laughs) And that's not fair because that's not equal. The research um, that you're referring to came out of Dartmouth. And um, it was a look at how kids brains restructure throughout adolescence and how that affects their perception of fairness. So what we know is that early on, kids really can only see fairness as um, equal access to resources or time or attention. As they go through adolescence, the brain shifts and they can begin to see fairness as a perception based on what a person's intentions were. So, for example, they may initially not understand why one kid gets extra, um, I, let me think of an example, Um one kid may be allowed to play with a friend after school and the other kid is asked to do their homework right away, right? So um, that feels like a very unfair thing. When they're older, they can begin to understand intention behind that, which is a parent might explain they do better if they have time to run around and cool off. I've noticed you do better if you hit it right away and don't put it off until later. Um, So kids take time to really get there. My advice here is don't worry if you're hearing your kids say that's not fair all the time. It's a completely normal way for a younger child to behave and you can't quite fight that part of the brain development, but but what you can do is kind of begin loosening things up for them and start asking things like, what do you think was the intention behind that? Let's talk a little bit about why that decision was made and help a child understand kind of the process that gets you to a decision. Um, Again, they may not be able to fully comprehend it yet, but I do think
0: it's kind of building that muscle for them. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So in chapter 11, talking about criticism, I liked what you said that traditional feedback is not as helpful as we think. Pointing out someone's flaws and area of growth code for flaws is not an effective way to help them improve. Can you talk about that 2017 study from the Harvard Business School?
1: Sure, so we sort of think, typically, that the way to give someone feedback is to tell them what they're not doing well. <laughs> yeah. And, and then naturally they will correct that and become a better person. Um, and so, you know, I, as you mentioned, I call it pointing out their flaws or areas for growth, which just means flaws. Right. Um, but really people learn best, do best and improve best when they feel competence. Yes. So, If you can, rather than saying to your child, you know, this is an area that you really need to work on. If you can say to your child, you're great at this. You're really good at this part of this. And I can see you using the skills that you're great at to be really good in this other area, too. Um, I mean, I could just feel myself naturally uh, when someone compliments me at something. I feel like I can get better at that. You know, mm-hmm. and when someone says I'm not particularly good at something, I'm like, I know I even try. Right. Yeah. So that's really that study is based on um, business feedback, but I but it's also research into the human brain and how we all respond to criticism and feedback.
0: Right. When I'm talking about moms, there's always like this disconnect. Like if I tell my daughter, here are your 35 flaws that she would just go, oh, my gosh, thank you, mom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's so nice of you. Now I know what to. Say. Yes, and but like, who would go out to lunch with someone who would just say, "Here, I'm going to tell you 35 things that's wrong with you." That's right. We often because I love you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah. We often
1: forget that we're sort of modeling how to be a friend as well. We're not just being a parent or a
0: teacher, but we're modeling how to have really good relationships with people. Yeah. Yeah. One of your conversations is on reputations. Can you talk about some of the key factors in that?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that we do that is quite confusing to kids is we send a message to them that says who cares what other people think? You do you. You be your own person. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. And then later we say, don't do that, what will people think? Don't wear that outfit, what will people think of you? You know, <laughs> And so we're really talking out of both sides of our mouth and I, I think it's hard for a kid to understand that. So this chapter on reputation is really about how we talk about the idea of what people think of us, what's important to understand in terms of that, what really is valuable and what we can let just kind of roll off of our shoulders. Um, So the conversations are kind of centered around that concept and the the dichotomy there and how confusing that can be for a a young person.
0: Gosh, that's really true. That's really true. It's a tough one. Yeah, it is. So can you I know each each of the conversations you go through the brief model. So could you go through the brief model with reputations?
1: Let's say you're aware of a rumor right? Because oftentimes when a kid is in middle school, the parents will be a, a pretty big part of the rumor mill, you know? So let's say that um, some parents are talking about hearing that, um, and and this is ripped from the headlines of um, my own experience being a parent, um, not my child, but um, part of a, a rumor that I heard during the middle school years, which was that Um, a girl who was on a um, a sports team had done something with a boy and he had filmed it. And this was eighth grade, something Mm -hmm. sexual. And so um, the conversation might be around then, all right, how does this impact this person's reputation, right? And how can I talk to my child about this in a way that isn't, damning to the other person but that might be educational to my own child. So the b is begin peacefully. So you, you don't know for example if your child has heard this or not chances are they have if you have but I think I would begin with something like um hey uh how's the whatever season going? The volleyball season going, right? And so you're going to start just very tangentially and then you know It's interesting because I heard some people talking about a member of the team in a way that seemed um, pretty provocative and maybe harmful. And I wondered if we could talk about that together. So then um, you can do a little bit more relating. You can say, um, is this something that you've heard? Is it okay if we talk about this? We don't have to bring up any names if you don't want to. Because your kid never wants to feel like they're narking on someone yeah, else. yeah so that's yeah. a good way to relate right there. And then I as interview, so you can say you, you might say, tell me if you've heard anything about um, someone filming a, a sex act with somebody you know in your grade or would you be more comfortable if I just told you what I've heard at this point? Um, Again, with with a touchy subject like this, I wouldn't ask your kid to bear too much that they're uncomfortable talking about. And then E is echo what you hear. So either you've shared what you heard or they've shared what they heard and you've talked about a little bit. So you might say, it sounds like you have heard that there's a little backlash that people are talking about this girl now in ways that are really unkind and that may be harmful to her. Um, And then F is feedback. So here's where you might say, you know, this was one thing that happened to this person. And I hope that we can be really cautious about protecting her from feeling like this is something that defines her from from here on out. So what do you think are some things that that, that people could do, maybe you, maybe other people to, to make her feel less like a victim here? right? And this is where you and your kid could brainstorm a little bit. Like maybe it's enough to smile and wave and show that they are not socially ostracized. You know, maybe you want to take the direct, the conversation in a direction where you say, are there ways that you want to talk to me or think about how you could avoid being in a situation like that? You know, you could look at it from that angle. There are probably four different angles you could approach such a heavy topic with. Um, And you just sort of feel your kid out. And again, you might get in and out and then a week later be like, you know, I was thinking again about that conversation we had and I wondered X, Y, or Z. And, you know, if you don't spend 30 minutes on each talk, your kid will be more likely to pick it up again at a later date if they know it's a three, four minute gig every time.
0: Yeah, great. That's great feedback. Thank you. So any other advice for moms we're about to wind up? You know, I think my my
1: parting piece of advice is I hear a lot of moms say, what if I've missed the boat? What if I just, we never did this and I don't know if my kid will talk to me. This is a natural time of life for your child to reinvent themselves. Therefore, it's a really natural time of life for you to do the same. So it is not too late. You have a golden opportunity to jump in with a new approach and give it a try and at first, your kid might be like, what weirdness is this? And, and it might take you three or four attempts before they let down their guard. But don't be afraid. Keep talking. Now is the time.
0: Great advice. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for your time. I know you're busy and I know my moms are going to love what you've just shared. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens Podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens Podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere, You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's.